Father, thank you so much, Lord, that you would come. Lord, there are so many reasons that we could adore you, Lord, for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy, Lord, for just looking into creation and seeing all that you've created. Lord, but we see the love that you have shown for us in the gospel, Lord, and that makes us adore you all the more. God, let our hearts be in tune to that this morning. God, let us see you for who you are. God, and let us love you more uh, because of all that you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, my name is Cole Forrest, and if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, uh, as Taylor said, I'm the student minister here. And so if we, we haven't got to meet, I would love to interact with you in between services this morning and just get to know who you are. Uh, you know, we've been here a short time, me and my wife, we moved here in May. And so just having the opportunity to meet new people is always uh, welcome. It's always in our wheelhouse. And so, uh, man, we are just so thankful to be here at Cross. And this morning, I'm really excited uh, to be able to dive into God's word with you this morning. And so, uh, if you've been with us here recently, what we've done uh, over the last couple of months is we've walked verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And so last week, Taylor finished up that series. And so you may be asking, well, what now? What are we going to talk about? Philippians is over and done with. So what are we going to move into? Uh, and so this morning, what I want to do is really point us in the idea of Advent. And so if you're like me, you may not have grown up in a church where Advent was ever celebrated or ever talked about. I had no idea what Advent was really until my college years. And so it was something new for me, but I've grown so much to love it as it always points me to Jesus. Because Advent is a time in which we are focused in on the coming of Christ, but not only the coming of his first coming, but also the anticipation of his second coming, where he will take us home to be with him. And so in Advent, y'all, there's many themes that people talk about. There's love, there's peace, there's joy. But this morning, what I want us to key in on is hope, hope. And I think that we can all agree that in the year 2020, things have not gone as planned. It feels like we've been living in one month ever since Corona hit the stage and we've all experienced some sort of discomfort or hopelessness this year. From job loss to parents trying to figure out what does it look like for my student to learn online? to just maybe your hours at work have been cut back or maybe you haven't been able to work because someone close to you has had the virus. We've had fear that's crept into our lives. And so, y'all, we've experienced hopelessness in an amount of ways, a numerous amount of ways this year. I think some things that may lead us to hopelessness in the near week is just the idea or the thought that we may not even be able to see certain family members due to the, the reality of which we live. And I know that for many of us, we will still be able to see some family, but there is a very harsh reality for many of us that we just will not be able to see those that we love in this season. And so in this season, y'all, we will try to find hope in many things because we desperately hope for, we hope to see family, we hope to find rest from work, we hope to even get the perfect present under a tree. But all reality is that those hopes will always leave us wanting. And that leads us to our central truth this morning is that, is that Christ is our hope to free us from sin and death. Christ is our hope 
to free us from sin and death. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope that you brought your copy of scripture. If you'll flip over to Romans chapter five, that's where we're gonna dig in at here in just a few moments. But as we're jumping into a, a letter that is written, we can't just quite jump right in and say, we know what's going on. And so as we begin to talk this morning, we have to understand the context of which Romans five is coming from. Romans happens to be one of my favorite books of the Bible. If you would look at it, you'd probably see more underlined highlights and circles in there than any other book. But as we begin to jump in, we see that in chapter one, a big and audacious statement is made by Paul. It's really the theme verse for the whole book. And that comes in Romans chapter one, verse 16, where he says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation to all who believe. So he's making a very big claim there that he will not be ashamed of what Jesus has done. And from there on, y'all, he begins to deconstruct views of what ways that which people can find their salvation, Jews in which they would really boast in their works, saying that I could achieve God's grace by the works that I do by being a good person. And then he would also lead into chapter three, really digging into the fact that like, it's not our good works. And it's not that even that Jews could do such a good thing to have good works and to be appeasing God in those things. But even so that all people would be desperately in need of his grace. That we have been marred by sin no matter where we come from or what we look like. But Paul begins then to illustrate how it's not by those works because it's through Abraham's faith that he is accredited righteousness that, righteousness that we see in Romans chapter 4. And then just before where we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 5, what we see is Paul begin to talk about how the relationship that we have that has been broken because of our sin has been reconciled through the work of Jesus Christ. That it's only through his work and not through our own. And so Paul begins to build off of this reconciliation as we jump into Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. If you will read along with me. Paul writes, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's pause there. We all experience hopelessness in our life, but we experience hopelessness because sin is real. Sin is real. You see, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably always known of the concept of sin, but we must acknowledge that sin is not something that any of us ever really enjoy talking about. None of us like to talk about the sin in our lives. We don't like to let people see the worst parts of who we are. And we want no one to ever see that there is anything wrong with us. And so very often we tend to gloss over sin or kind of put it under the rug and not let anyone else ever see it. We never want people to know about the sin in our lives. But the reality is, y'all, is that we live in a culture that spills out. Do just that. Drink the Kool-Aid of the world that says that all people are good. Maybe except for, with the exception of those who may be in jail or in prison. Those people may not be all that good, but for the most part, everyone else is good. That's what the world spills out is that we are all good. Me being a country music fanatic, and you may disagree to say that country music isn't that good. Well, I'm just going to tell you, you need to get saved. But, um, you know, <laughs> country music has this line now of like, man, that things are always good. There's a popular song in the last probably six months that came out that Luke Bryan wrote, and it's entitled, All People Are Good. And one of the couple of the lyrics that he says is that I believe most people are good. I believe that this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe that most people are good. Y'all, we live in a society that screams for us to ascribe to people this idea that we are innately good. But here in this passage, Paul goes kind of right in contrast to that. And we can't skip over the fact that he says that sin came into the world through one man. 
sin coming into the world means that there was a moment in which sin was not real, that it was not something that was actually taking place. And so what I want to kind of begin to frame up for us is that sin very much so is real. And if I would hope that in the next coming weeks, that uh, as our church family starts to do this new thing, well, we did it this past year. I'm new to the scene, so I didn't get to do it all. But for those of you who did, we're doing a read through the Bible plan. Going after our growing up series, we're going to use the F260 plan to walk through the scriptures. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin in the beginning where we see Genesis 1 and 2 play out where we see perfection at its best, that we see unity between God and his creation, between Adam and Eve. But then just one page over in your Bible from Genesis 2 to chapter 3, you would very easily see that sin enters into the scene. As Moses recounts the story of Adam and Eve and how they would disobey God because they desired to be like him that they had perfect unity with the creator of the world, but instead of being fully satisfied in him, they wanted to have their own decisions, but they thought they could be their own God and thought that they knew what was best for themselves. So sin enters into the world, but in this story, y'all, we see that once they ate and once they knew that they were naked, what followed that knowledge? Shame. Shame followed that knowledge. Not only were they ashamed of the fact that they had been disobedient to God, but now they were also ashamed to let anyone else see the marred, messed up life, the faults that they now had. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. That way each other couldn't see what was going on with them. But then they also hid from God. They didn't want their creator to know that they had sinned against him. And so in a society that ascribes people as good, y'all, we could very easily see that Adam and Eve weren't that good. We could very easily see that, that they disobeyed God and in doing so, disobedience to God was now real. It was in the world. You know, we don't have to look very far to see sin in all of our lives. We look at the offices that we go to work in. We look at the classrooms that we sit in. We look at the dinner tables at which we gather to eat at, or even the friend relationships that we have where we text and we call and we see sin, but yet we tend to gloss over it. You see, living for ourselves instead of for God is very easily seen for someone who is looking for it. It's very easily seen. So we cannot live in this mental space that ascribes everyone to be good, but accept the fact that we are all tainted by sin. We are all messed up. And as we see in the scriptures, y'all, it's also manifests in our lives. Like it's not just something that we can say, but it's something that we see as real and tangible. Our experience never trumps what the scripture says, but I can surely say that our experience in this very surely points to what the scripture says. That that is true. But see, sin isn't simply the only thing that entered into the world. Read back with me in verse 12. It says, sin came into the world through one man. That's what we just talked about. And death through sin. So not only is sin real, but death is real. So we experience hopelessness because death is real. Sin has consequences. There had to be retribution for the disobedience that they had gone out against God that Adam and Eve had committed in the garden. You see, so many times we tend to just wipe things under the rug. Adam and Eve couldn't just get a pat on the back and say, it's gonna be okay. That's not what they could get because God is a just God. He is a good God. He is a God of justice and therefore justice had to be taken for the actions against him. So what happens? They're expelled from the garden and no longer in perfect unity with God. 
but Paul here in this passage is saying that it wasn't just that they were expelled from the garden that was their consequence, but rather that death was now real. And from, from, from this moment forth, people would no longer live in the physical bodies that God had created for them forever. No longer would this be the case. If we look at Genesis chapter 3, 22 through 23, we see this. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good from evil. So due to their sin, now they have this knowledge. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. See, now we get a sense that life here on earth is temporary. It's temporary. I think we all know that to be true, but now here in this moment, we know that it is very much true. So not only were Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, that wasn't simply just their punishment, but now we see that they could not attempt to live forever in the brokenness of their sin. Where we had once experienced perfect unity with God, now that was completely broken and God was not going to allow them to live forever in their brokenness. That's awesome that he would even consider us in that way and not just shoo us to the side and throw us away. You see, physical death is so real and we see it all the time. Death is something that each and every one of us throughout our lifetime have probably experienced and seen so vividly. If we were to take a simple look, even at this season in which we now live, we would have hearts that are burdened for family, for friends, who have lost those that are dearest to them, many of which may be experiencing Christmas for the first time without a loved one. It's painful. Some from years past and some due recently to sickness. See, this idea of physical death should be very sobering for us as we think about the fact that one day all life will come to an end. Each and every one of us will have a day in which our bodies no longer function in the capacity to maintain life. And this is a painful reality. Throughout our lifetime, we lose friends, parents, siblings, grandparents, and it happens in the blink of an eye, making the pain even more harsh. But for each of us, when we see death firsthand in our lives, we begin to think about death and the reality of it for ourselves, not just for other people, but for ourselves. And we begin to ask questions like, what is the meaning of life? Is there a life after this one? What will I do to make my life Count And each of these questions are so valid and we must find answers to them. But these questions are ultimately pointing us to a reality that while physical death is real, there is a far more harsh and more urgent death that we need to be aware of. And that is our spiritual death. That is what physical death is pointing to. So Paul here in this passage isn't simply referring to physical death, but per his statement in Romans chapter one, verse 16, that we needed to be saved from something. And it wasn't just physical, physical death, but it had to be our spiritual deadness. I mean, in Ephesians chapter two, we see this very clearly. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, y'all. We are dead in our sin. This means that there is no life in us. Just as in physical death, y'all, there is no breath in our lungs. There is no heartbeat. There is no movement of our limbs. In spiritual death, there is no life. There is no breath. There is no blood pumping. And there is no movement. So many times in our, in our church settings, we begin to kind of take this spiel to kind of make it as if our spiritual death isn't all that big of a deal. We begin to almost illustrate it as if we jumped out of a boat as in we couldn't swim. And so we're just flailing our arms around waiting for someone to throw us a life raft. Y'all, that, that's not dead. That's you trying for something. 
And then we begin to kind of even maybe post it a little bit further to say, man, I'm not on top of the water anymore. Now I'm kind of just sinking and like I'm kind of accepting. I'm seeing what's going on. The light is slowly but surely going away as I begin to fall deeper and deeper. And I'm just waiting for someone to save me that they could just give me some some mouth-to-mouth resuscitation really quick. Or maybe they can just push the water out of my my lungs really quick. That way I can breathe because I still have life within me. Y'all, that's not dead either. Dead is being at the bottom of the ocean with no life. There's no air bubbles coming out of our mouth. There is no movement. There is nothing going on. We can do nothing to save us from our spiritual deadness. And so we must talk about this and be very real and candid. That it's not that we can do anything to come to God, but he had to come to us. You see, sin created a spiritual death or a chasm that distanced Adam and Eve from God. And so what we can see from the Genesis story, but also what Paul is writing is that their physical displacement from the garden only pointed us to their spiritual truth that they were spiritually distanced or displaced from God and that they were no longer in relationship with him. But see, Paul doesn't leave that as just a reality for Adam and Eve. It's not just a reality for a long, long time ago, but now it's a reality for all as we see that death is a consequence for all. And so we experience hopelessness because death is a consequence for all. Let's look back at verse 12 yet again. He writes, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We see the realities of this verse today, just as we talked about physical death being real. And so death spread to all men, to all of mankind. Death has become real. We know this to be true because we see it daily. We read it in the paper. Well, if you get a paper, you see it on your social media. And so you see it all over the place, but we must begin to ask the question, why? Why is this the case? And whether you've grown up in Christian circles or not, we can all ask this question, why do we die? Not the answer that science shows that just like the idea that our bodies will one day just not work anymore. But if Adam was the one who sinned, why is that burden now placed upon me. If he was the one, why would it be me? We live in such a self-centered, individualistic society. We would never take the hit for somebody else. So why is this true for me? And Paul gives us this answer very clearly in his statement that all sinned. That all sinned. See, Paul was referring really to this moment in which Adam sinned. The moment that sin entered into the world, Paul tells us, is the moment that we sinned. Paul is referring to that one moment, and it's not simply that we presently sin against God. When we read that, we can very easily say, well, yeah, that happens, that's true. Like, I presently sin against God. Or even that Adam stood in our place and that if we would have been there, that we would have sinned just like Adam. Really what it means is that when Adam sinned, we too were making the active choice to disobey God. Making the active choice to disobey God. That makes us partakers in original sin partakers, not just that we are some ambassador, but now that we are partakers. This is why death spread to all, because in Adam, each and every one of us sinned. Therefore, each of us are personally deserving of the consequences of sin. It's personal. It's between us and God. But not only is this personal, Paul begins to lay out that our, it's personal because our sin starts in our hearts. So we experience hopelessness because our disobedience starts in the heart. Our disobedience starts in the heart. If you'll look back at Romans 5, starting at verse 13, we'll read together. It says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. See, here we are reminded of a historical context that when Adam sinned, there was no law. I think we all live in the state where in which we like, yeah, like the, the law was real, the law was true. But sometimes we forget that the law was not real up until this point, that the law had not been given. The 10 commandments weren't even a thing. And so how in the world would this be true? And so all Adam had up until this point was the fact that he had been told from God to not eat of a tree, to multiply and subdue the earth. He had been given direct commands. And as we've seen in the scripture thus far, Adam failed in that command. He failed in that command. And so Paul says here that sin was not counted where there was no law. This does not mean y'all that the reality of sin is not true. And it does not mean that the consequences of sin are undone for death was still real. In saying that sin was not counted is like holding up your hand to tell how tall someone is. We've all probably done this, especially if you've had kids. Um, I haven't had that joy yet, but many of you have in the room. And so you tend to see people you maybe haven't seen in a long time and they'll ask you, well, how are they doing? And you'll just slightly put out your hand and say that they're this tall, right? Y'all, y'all not, you, you with me? Yeah, y'all done that before. If not, then like you maybe haven't lived yet like me. Um, but like we, we do this whole thing of like where we ascribe them to be a reality of what we think that how tall they are. And so this isn't exact by any means. It's relative to how we've seen them grow. And so what we see is that in the same way as if we would kind of have a relative idea of what sin would look like, they didn't have a measuring stick to know exactly this, 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 and this. All they knew is the, the handed down verb, verbal conversations that Adam had had with God that he then spread to his lineage knowing what was God like? What was his character like? What was his love like? What was it like, Adam, for you to walk with him in the garden and then to be distanced from God? They had the verbal communication of a face-to-face encounter and they would not have known exactly what they were doing, but they sure saw that sin existed because death still reigned. I mean, just flip over one chapter past Genesis 3 to chapter 4 and you see Cain destroy Abel. He straight up kills the man. We don't have the law yet to say you shall not murder. But yet we see that God loves life and that he has created people in his image and therefore he values that life. He says that Abel's blood screams to him from the ground. While there was no law for him to know I should not kill, it was very evident from God's character that he should not kill. And so for all the people that lived from Adam to Moses before the Ten Commandments were given, they had those conversations. And just like us today, y'all, they had a knowledge of who God was. They had a knowledge of who God is. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly displayed in all of creation. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter one, verse 20. That all are without excuse because he is real and we can know that he is there. So even though they didn't have a measuring stick like the law, sin was still real because sin comes from within us, not from some tablets that have some writing on them and not from a poster that we saw in Sunday school class growing up. That's not where sin reigns at. Y'all, sin comes from within us. And each of us, if we take the moment to realize that from the moment we were born, sin was real for us. It took on the fullness, we took on the fullness of our sin and y'all, it grew exponentially. We see quickly as we grow that selfishness isn't something that we have to be taught. We don't have to be taught how to try to live only for ourselves. And y'all, this is real because of the fact that we all sinned in Adam that because we sinned in him, this is now true of us. And so from that point on, we see that our hearts are against God. They're not keyed into him. And Taylor says it a few times a year, but I think it's worth saying this morning that following your heart is the worst advice you could give anyone. 
because our sins are desperately wicked. Jeremiah writes in verse, chapter 17, verse nine, the heart is deceitful about all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Y'all, we cannot trust our hearts because they are full of sin. You see, sin isn't simply an action problem, y'all. It is a heart problem. It is a heart problem. And in many ways, y'all, we've seen in the last couple of weeks um, that Buford actually does get fall. It's not summer year round, right? As I would believe coming from, the, from North Carolina, the much different state that like, it's just hot year round. We finally have reached a season in which wearing a sweatshirt to go outside is nice and it's almost mandatory unless you wear shorts year round. Um, and for you, I just say that there's gotta be grace for you. Um, but we begin to see and smell this, the smoke, right? If you drive home, you probably see smoke coming from a few chimneys. You smell smoke in the air, but what does smoke always point us to? It points us to the reality that there is a fire. It is a signal for the fire. And so in many ways, y'all, we try to deal with actions a lot. We try to say, don't do this or do this. We tell our kids and our students, hey, just, this, this is not good for you. I won't tell you why, but just don't do it. And so we begin to try to place this idea that they should just have an outward change rather than an inward one. And what we really should see is that the actions that we portray are only pointing to the fire within our hearts the messed upness within our hearts. See, our actions are a signal to the messed up hearts that we have. Jesus says this in Luke chapter six, verse 45. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Y'all, we must understand that apart from Christ, there is no good in us. It's all evil. We are sinful and desperately Wicked. You see, they didn't need the law to show them how to sin, but rather they knew how to sin on their own because it came from their hearts, y'all. And that's true for us today. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we are sinners. And so you may begin to wonder, hey, what does this guy even do throughout the week? Youth pastors like aren't usually paid on staffs or whatever. So like, what does this guy even do? He just hangs out and goes, hangs out with students throughout the week. And you may wonder the same thing about our kids' ministries. Like, what, what do they do apart from like a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night? And let me be the first to tell you that what we do not do is try to make kids and students a bunch of rule followers who will never be disobedient. Uh, let me just be bold enough to let you know, our goal is not to make you have good children or good students. That is not our goal. We aren't out here for the sake of that, but rather we are here for the purpose of preaching the gospel and making disciples of kids and students. Y'all, outward obedience will mean nothing unless the heart is right. It will mean absolutely nothing. And so we aren't here for an outward conformity to a set of rules, but rather we are here to see life transformation happen in the hearts of kids, students, and adults. That's all we are here for. We're not here to become just a bunch of good people who look down on other people. We are here to see hearts transformed by the power of the gospel. See, God isn't simply after our obedience, which is why the hope that Paul begins to give us in the coming verses isn't about your work or my work, but rather it is about the work of Christ to change our hearts. And so let's begin reading about this hope in Romans chapter five, verse 15. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So let's pause here. And then Paul begins to contrast all that we have seen up to this point. All the hopelessness that we have seen, that sin is real, that death is real, that death is real for all of us because each and every one of us is sin. But not only that, but that sin comes from within us. 
And he begins to write about how the free gift is not like the trespass. And so that leads us to this point that we experience hope in Christ through his gift of grace. We experience hope in Christ through his gift of grace. See, he starts us off with the grace of God displayed in Jesus in contrast to Adam. That through Adam brought death and through Jesus came grace that abounded for many. So what is this Jesus? Who is he like? What has he done? He has lived a perfect life, free from sin. One free from trespasses and all sin, y'all. He healed people and he spoke to people. He had the authority of the Old Testament scriptures to which he spoke from in the temple and he saw people and he loved people. He would meet them in their brokenness. He didn't turn a blind eye to them. He met with them. He ate dinner with them. He even pushed back against the religious elites who wanted to shame them. Y'all, this Jesus is unlike anyone else that we have ever known because despite his perfection and freedom from any form of sin, Jesus would take on the fullness of our penalty and die on a cross for the things that he had not done. Nothing had he done deserved him to be beaten, mocked, spat upon, and nailed to a cross for that which he did not deserve. He did not deserve any of it, but on the cross he would take on the fullness of our sin to die a death that we deserve in our place. Y'all, John writes this in 1 John. It is remarkable that in this is love. So this is how we know love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Y'all, this means that Jesus died in our place and he took on the full penalty that we deserve for our sin. And then after three days of being dead in a grave, he would resurrect to new life, defeating our sin and death. It is only in Jesus' work where we find this free gift to be true because this gift that he gives us is mainly himself. He gives us himself. He gives us Jesus in our place. Y'all, that is grace that is given. And we can so easily begin to talk about grace and say the, the word grace, but never really understand what grace means. And so for us to define it, grace is the unmerited favor of God towards man. It's the unmerited favor of God towards man, meaning that we don't earn anything but it is freely given. See, we didn't serve Jesus, but yet he came to serve us anyways. And where our sin left us in spiritual death, he gave to, came to give us life. You see, he took on the full penalty of our sin. And so when I think about the full penalty of our sin, I remember a time in me and Ashton's life when we had just gotten married. We hadn't even been married a year yet. So we're young, you know, 21, 22. And so like, we're just young. And so we, uh, we get married, and then soon thereafter, we sell Ashton's Jeep to buy her the Honda Accord to which she drives today. Um, and so it's a, a beautiful car. We love it. We were like, man, we're going to go in debt over something. It better be something that will live forever pretty much. And so we went with a Honda, okay? Um, but throughout that time, I remember uh, in that season, I had come out of residency and was building houses. And so it was a rainy day. And so when it rains in construction and you haven't built the roof yet, you don't work. And so we were, I wasn't working that day, and I remember sitting home waiting and kind of waiting and being like, oh, Ashton should be coming home. Like she called me when she left, but like, where is she? And I remember in that moment saying, man, please don't let her be in a wreck. Please don't let her be in a wreck. And then only for moments later for me to get the tear-filled call of what had happened. And so what I would do is I would jump off the couch, get in the truck and drive past all the stopped cars on the two-lane road to make sure I could get to my bride to make sure that she would be okay. And as I arrive, I see that she is perfectly fine apart from the tears and the sorrow in her heart. I see our car was badly beaten up and the man's El Camino that she hit was totaled. It was done. And I remember the man's wife walked over to us and told Ashton that everything was gonna be okay. And that she always hated that car anyways. 
She was glad to be rid of it. And while everything was okay personally, we began to see that for two part-time employees freshly married that the rent costs were no joke. That insurance spikes would be a lot, that car repairs would be tough, and the lady said that everything was going to be okay. But it certainly wasn't for our pockets. You see, what would have made the day so much better would have been if she would have said, man, we accept all responsibility for what happened, even though it was your fault. That she would have taken on the insurance spikes, the buying themselves a new car, the paying for our car repairs. If she would have taken on the full penalty of the messed upness that we had created, things would have been so nice. It would have been perfect. And y'all, that's exactly what Jesus has done. That is exactly what Jesus has done. He has taken on the fullness of the penalty that you and I deserve because we have not gone after him, but rather he would give us his righteousness in our place and give us grace. Y'all, that is really what grace is like, that we are forgiven of anything at all, but rather we are forgiven of all of our charges. You see, first John writes in 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Say faithful for me and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, the fact that we would even be forgiven of our sin, our, disobedi our disobedience to God is more than we could ever deserve. And that is why it is a gift. And so we experience hope in Christ through his gift of grace, but we also experience hope in Christ through his gift of righteousness. Let's continue reading in verse 16. And it says that the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus had come and done the exact opposite of that which Adam had done. This is why he was a type. Adam was pointing to what Jesus would do in the opposite way where Adam would be disobedient, Christ would be completely obedient. You see, sin brought about condemnation. This means that there was a crime committed against a God and the gavel would be raised and slammed to say that the verdict of the case is guilty. That is what we have. This means that we get exactly what we deserve. We get punishment for our disobedience, but Jesus. After there would be a multitude of sin from Adam to, to Jesus' day to today and into the future, Jesus' one act of obedience in submitting himself to the will of the Father would bring about justification for us. See, in our Philippians series, uh, we, we talked about this passage, and it was so um, just hit me in the heart a little bit. And so in Philippians 2, uh, Paul writes in verse 8 that, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus stepped into the courtroom seeing our guilt, and instead of letting it, us bear it, he took it upon himself. He took the full wrath of God. Y'all, what this means is that he drank the whole cup. It means that there is nothing else for you to have poured out on you. It means that every time that you sin, you have consequences for your sin, but it does not mean that God's wrath is being poured out on you because it was completely poured out upon Jesus. So we must ask the question, why does this matter for us? This theological truth, like the stuff from the Bible, why does it matter for me? You see, it means that we don't have to take the punishment that we deserve. 
It means that through faith in Christ, y'all, I can wake up every morning knowing that if and when I sin, Jesus has paid the full penalty. That I don't have to walk in the shame of my sin. And through Jesus taking our place, giving us his perfect record and him taking on our sinful record, you know, we can be justified or declared righteous because of Jesus' perfection in the place of my marred sin-filled record. This is what we know as the great exchange. That Jesus would take upon the fullness of the penalty that we deserve, my ugly rags of sin, and that he would give us his perfect record of righteousness. We are declared righteous, good, and just in the gospel because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we think that we can do. And y'all, this is hope, that Jesus would make the impossible possible in the gospel. Each of us could not do enough good to outweigh the sin that we even commit daily. So Jesus came to live a perfect life to give us his righteousness so that we could live with him forever. This is a great truth, but Paul doesn't end there. Look down at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that sin, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, we have hope today because of the promise of Christ's grace. We have hope today because of the promise of Christ's grace. See, earlier we saw that we didn't need a measuring stick to know exactly how to sin or even what sin we were committing, but that sin was outflowing from our heart. Now we see that the intentions of God giving the law weren't for us to try to live up to a standard, but rather to show us that the standard we could never meet. We could never meet the standard of God. And if we were able to look at the moral law that Moses had been given, we could easily see that we don't add up in every area. Because where physical actions were displayed, Jesus would further them to say the intentions of our heart that leads to those actions would cause that sin to be true for us even then. But as the law came into reality, we could clearly measure the depth of our depravity and the depth of the sin that has devastated us. See, we could clearly place ourselves up against the, hey, are you tall enough to ride sign? And you would never reach it. You would never be tall enough to get into God's good graces. However, hope would enter in because we have hope in the midst of our weakness. Because in our weaknesses, Christ's power is shown. And while we can easily see our sin in the face of Christ's perfection and the law, God's grace covers all the sin that we have ever committed, all of it. The past, the the actively committing things that are going on right now, even in our hearts as we sit here in this room and all that we will ever commit, it has been dealt with. This shows us that no matter how far we try to run from the Lord, y'all, his grace finds us. His grace finds us. This is the story of the prodigal son as he would ask for his inheritance early, basically wishing his father to be dead and would run off into a far off country to squander it in useless and tasteless living. And he would try to muster up the courage and muster up the words to be able to come back to his father and say, just let me be one of your hired hands. But as the father would see him on the horizon, he wouldn't look at him and point the finger, but rather he would come and embrace him, love him, clean him up and give him the family ring. See, this is the grace that God has for each of us. Grace that not only saves us, but sustains us as his love carries us on forever. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel that each time we fall, he picks us back up again, but he doesn't just pick us back up. He shows us the scars in his hands and in his feet, exemplifying his love for us. That is what he does. He doesn't just say, get up and go on, but he gets up and says, get up, I've paid for it. Let's go, let's walk together. 
And this is hope that Christ would die to defeat our sin and death, both for now and forever. Y'all, sin is dealt with. Death is dealt with, both now and forever. No longer must we live in the shame of our sin, but we can live in the freedom of the eternal life that Jesus has purchased for us. And so as we begin to close, as we talk about, man, what does this look like for us to have hope in the midst of this hopelessness, hopelessness state that we find ourselves in? I want to give us four steps to finding hope in Christ. Four steps to finding hope in Christ. And the first is this, acknowledge your personal sin. Acknowledge it. Just know that it's there. Don't just try to sweep it under the rug, but just acknowledge that, man, we mess up, that you're not perfect. And it's not much, it doesn't take much going throughout the day to realize that we're not perfect. Whether we feel it in our emotions or we see it in an action, we can very vividly see that we are not perfect. And so we must acknowledge our personal sin. Secondly, we must wrestle with the hopelessness of sin. We must wrestle with the hopelessness of sin. So we can, it's not good enough for us to say, yeah, I messed up, but we must acknowledge what does that mean for me? Both eternally and in temporal life, what does sin mean for me? What does the way that I talk to someone impact the way that they see Jesus? What is the way that I choose to, to use my browsing history? What does that mean for my marriage? What does it mean here and now, not only in the wrestling of in my eternity, am I with the Lord or am I not, but what does it mean for you today? What are the consequences of our sin? Thirdly, we must believe the hope of grace. We must believe the hope of grace. There is no hope apart from God's grace. And so when we say we believe the grace, y'all, it can't just be a, a knowledge of, yeah, I've read this and I know it to be true, but rather it must be a true resting in the gospel. It means that we sit completely down in it. It's not just that we have a head knowledge of Jesus did this one thing one time and that's kind of all it is, but rather that I sit in it every morning. As I wake up and as I sleep, I rest in the fact that Jesus has paid the penalty for me. So true belief isn't just saying one thing and doing another. True belief looks like we actually rest. There is action that follows the words. Then lastly, we share the hope of grace around the table. We share the hope of grace around the table. Like I said earlier, is that this is an Advent season, meaning that we are about to celebrate Christmas in the coming week. Many of us will sit around tables of family, whether it's the ones that live immediately in your household or family that you're going to travel to see or they're even going to travel to you. It may be even the setup where you have the computer, your food, and you, and you eat through virtual dinner with your family or friends, whatever it is. But either way, y'all, we have an opportunity this week to share the hope of the gospel with people who may not ever hear the truth of the gospel who don't live in the perfect righteousness that Christ has bought for them, that don't live in the truth that he would bring hope to our hopeless situations. Y'all, we can share the hope of the gospel, and it's not just for us. He didn't give it to us for us to hold on to. He gave it to us to give away. And so we must share the hope of grace around the table this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, God. I thank you that you have died a death in our place. God, that you would... See us in our hopeless state, God, that you would see us in our sin or that you would see us and know, God, just the depths of our heart. God, in our sin, Lord, we know that we messed up or that we had no right to claim, that there was no good in us, God, that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Lord, we need your grace. Lord, we needed you to come and justify us. Lord, we needed you to come and make what was true untrue that we could have a relationship with you once again. 
Lord, you've made it so that even in our physical death, God, we can have life in you. Lord, I pray that that hope would spur us on in this season and in the season to come.